0: that was the uh, Hockey Night in Canada theme circa about 2008 right there. Uh, and as always, that's an indication of where we're going to be today as far as in the time of the hockey story. Uh, so we'll be concentrating on that time frame really. Well, uh, the subject of today's episode is had a 30-year career in hockey, but that's the one I remember most personally. So that's the theme I decided to go with today. But first and foremost, just always want to start out by saying greetings and salutations, everyone out there. Uh, We're only four short days from the start of the NHL regular season, and it looks like there's gonna be no shortage of awesome action taking place to open the season. So I'm super pumped. Uh, For me, I'm really looking forward to seeing how the temporary realignment goes, and if some of the predictions of some of the pundits out there that have already been made are gonna come to fruition. For now, though, uh, I just want to get it back and say thank you so much for choosing to uh, tune in. Uh, Let's talk about what we're gonna do today. This is, as you know, from The Point. Uh, the podcast where each week we examine a book uh, written about the world of hockey and give it a closer look uh, looking at its themes and facts inside and maybe just expanding on those a little bit as well as giving the uh, book a bit of a literary once over i'm your host danny lambert and as always i'll be leading our discussion this week so let's go ahead and get right into it in the world of sports and hockey it's easy to get focused on the players as they're the ones that we see day in and day out playing the sport. But as many of us know, it it takes a lot more than just great players to make a great team. Sure, coaches are important as well, but what about the folks who run the team from the background, the ones who get the players and the coaches into the organization? It could be said that most uh, that the positions of general manager and president of hockey operations or sports operations, depending on what the sport is, is probably the most important people in building a uh, professional sports franchise. Think of the efforts needed to sign the right players, manage the team's payroll, to stay salary cap compliant, get the right coach, and the list really goes on and on. There's so many uh, responsibilities, and it's not really an easy job. But thinking back, do you always remember who the GM of your favorite team was, uh, especially your favorite hockey team? Do you always remember who the uh, president of hockey operations was? Well, maybe you should because I assure you they've, they've had almost as much, if not more impact on your favorite hockey team than your favorite player on that team did. Looking at the list of great front office hockey executives over the last 20 to 30 years, a handful of names come to mind. One of my favorites and one of the most successful and most experienced of that list is Brian Burke. burkey has been a player agent, an assistant GM, a GM for four different teams, president of hockey operations for the Flames, president of the Maple Leafs, and an executive vice president for hockey operations for the NHL. That's quite an impressive resume. It can really be said that a lot of the big moves that have shaped the NHL for almost three decades were a Berkey's doing. His personality is one of the strongest I've ever seen in the world of hockey. His gruff, blunt, and very truthful insights are obvious if you watch him on Sportsnet or Hockey Night in Canada as Berkey breaks down the stories of the league today. He's seen it all, and it's great to hear such a seasoned veteran of the executive side tell things like it is. But his experience as as an executive is only half the story. Everything in his background tells the story of why Burke has been such a successful personality in hockey for so long. That's why when I saw that he had put a book out, I jumped at the chance to read it. His book, Burke's Law, A Life in Hockey by Burke and Stephen Brunt, is a uncensored and honest look at the events that have shaped Burke, the NHL, and some of your favorite teams uh, for, as mentioned, the last three decades of uh, hockey. So let's get into the story as we dis- get into the discussion over Burke's Law, started with the warm-up that's coming up next.
1: We're not going to kiss anyone's butt to play here. We have a beautiful arena. We've got our own plane. Uh, and again, you're, you're talking a great hockey market and one of the great cities in the world. So I'm not kissing anyone's behind to play here. That's just not going to happen. He wants out, I'm going to move him. I'm not going to trade him unless it's a trade that makes sense for the organization. This is not a case where the player gets to pick where he goes when he's under contract. I want to point out to the officials that Todd does not play for Detroit. It just looks like that because he's wearing two or three red sweaters all the time. Uh, I didn't know that tackling was an acceptable tactic. I didn't see it in our rule book. Sabine is not English for punch me or headlock me in a scrum. But our goalie has large pads in a cage. He's clearly distinguishable from the rest of our players. And again, he's the one goalie on the ice that doesn't die when he gets brushed. Detroit has 12 captains and assistants to speak to the officials. We find that unusual. Most teams have only two or three. Uh, It's amazing to me the number of players that are permitted to protest calls in Detroit uniforms. The only thing I'm surprised about is I have not received anything from the league about this fine. I just saw it on TV and I don't think that's any way to conduct business. I'm really disappointed in that. As far as Scotty getting fined for pushing a reporter, I'm gonna send Scotty a check. I support Scotty fully. And again, curbing my Comments so that I don't get fined. Uh, if we're going to have asinine, insane, inflationary signings, uh, then it suits me fine that most of them have been in the East so far. There is no way, uh, as long as I am in charge of the Vancouver Canucks, there's no way we're going to vote for that. I, to me, it'd be the same thing if the National Football League decided its games by having guys throw footballs to retire. Start whacking these guys and it'll go away. And, uh, We can't let our game turn into European soccer. The math doesn't work. There's 10 or 12 teams that think they have a legitimate shot. They all load up. They all spend money. They all trade draft picks. There's only one cup. Was Danny the only player that didn't live up to his expectations or our expectations in the second round? No. So shame on anyone that wants to say this is all
0: Dan Cloutier's fault. So what you heard there was kind of a collage slash menagerie of quotes from Berkey, uh, mostly from his time as GM of the Canucks. Uh, I just really loved it, and I think it really introduces the man pretty well uh, because that's really what he's remembered for in a lot of ways is just those uh, honest, blunt, uh, yet uh, kind of did he say that assessments of the situation. Uh, the one about the sedeen, uh what Sedin means in... Swedish is probably one of my favorites almost ever of anybody, so Uh, I don't know if it's right up there with playoffs from Jim Mora, but it's pretty good. So welcome to the warm-up. I just want to start off by saying, uh, to say that Brian Burke is gruff, that might be underselling it a little bit. But I still want to kind of bring up the fact that I think that it's a bit unfair to say uh, it's that simple when you describe the man. From an outsider's perspective, you might think that Berkey's too abrasive and just not a nice person. I mean, this is the man that challenged NHL Hall of Fame defenseman Kevin Lowe to a fight in 2011 to settle some differences, and he didn't quite publicly, if you remember. So, I can see where you'd get that impression that Berkey's not someone who's very nice or thoughtful. But that's not how I feel about Berkey, especially after reading this book. In Burke's Law, I found Burke to be honest, funny, blunt, smart, and most of all, thoughtful. The way he describes his family, life, career, and the players that he brought into the league, and the dedication to all of them that he had, it really makes you realize that there was really a great person under that hard exterior, and still is, really. You might be surprised to hear that for 11 years, Berkey flew between Vancouver and Anaheim to Boston every weekend to visit his kids and keep a promise to them that he would keep up with them even after his divorce from their mother the best way to describe the tone of the book and what makes it so special is to take a quote that he gave to the Globe and Mail in an article in October of 2020 uh, quote, Berkey says quote I'm not running for office, I'm not kissing babies I don't have to be politically correct If people don't like me, they can turn the TV off. But what they are going to get, if they leave the TV on, is an unvarnished opinion of what just happened, and I think people will appreciate that. End quote. Sure, Berkey was talking about his new job as an analyst on Sportsnet, but for me, that describes Berkey's tone in the book and pretty much every interaction the guy's probably had in life since he was a teenager. Now, apply to what he said about his responsibility to give you, quote, the unvarnished opinion and apply it to his wide and long-spanning re- career, and you have absolute gold. There, was, there were so many points in this book where I laughed at Berkey's brazenness or was appreciative for him sharing the inside scoop on a major event in the NHL that he was a part of. He could have just kept quiet on a few things, but that's not his style, and it really made for a great telling of a great hockey story. Also, if that wasn't enough, I have to confess that I did this one on audiobook, and Berkey is the reader, which made it like 20 times better. So I recommend that if you are an audiobook type, definitely do this one on audiobook. It's it's worth it. But still, like him or hate him, there's no denying that the NHL today is littered with the influence of Brian Burke. His breadth exper- of experiences and the positions he was in and just allowed him to make some of the most influential changes and moves that still resonate today. But when asked in the same Globe and Mail article that I referenced earlier about his legacy, Berkey responded that, quote, My legacy would be that I was progressive in how the game was played. I like old-time hockey, but I supported rule changes to make the game faster and supported all the concussion protocols. I made my players do more in the community than any other GM. And I did more in the community than any other GM." End quote. To me, that means he cared about the game and did his darndest to make it better and make it better in the right way. So when thinking about Berkey, so thinking about Berkey's life in hockey, I really wanted to start at the beginning and explain to you how Burke became the force in hockey that he did. And to me, it's pretty simple. He started out with the love of the game just like anyone else, but unlike many others, he not only loved the game, but continued to grow himself, uh, personally and professionally, and took that growth to raise his stature in the game, where he truly did make a huge difference. With that being said, let's take it to the beginning and talk about the places, events, and people that made Berkey into what he is today. The first period is on right after this. Any a story you can think of with Luke, where he something from him?
1: Well, I was late for practice on Christmas Day one year and uh i think it was my junior year and i took three freshmen to midnight mass it wasn't like we were out these kids were homesick and we were playing in the tournament i think we were in the rpi tournament that year or it might have been the uh the blue green tournament in new hampshire but we were in a tournament so we didn't get to go home so everyone else in the world had christmas day off we skated and i think we left for the tournament on the 27th well i took these freshmen to midnight mass i come back i oversleep and uh I never oversleep i'm an early riser but that day i did late for practice lou made me skate at four o'clock in the morning for nine days he interrupted the nine days during the tournament and then started tacking on days afterwards
2: and uh, it worked i haven't been late for anything since
0: so what you heard there was uh brian burke talking to providence college uh, in an interview that he gave uh, talking about his college coach lou lamorello uh, the great Lou Lamorello, the same one that you know, who's the general manager of the Islanders currently and was the longtime manager and uh, architect of many of those uh, Stanley Cup teams in New Jersey. Uh, really good story. Uh, really talks to you about uh way Berkey grew up, and I think that's obviously the theme of this first period and will help us uh, understand the man a lot better and uh, understand the book much, much better. So. Brian Burke's hockey journey starts when he was 13 years old, living in a Edina, Minnesota, and went to his first North Stars game with his family. I'm just going to say that's pretty awesome. Even though he's a South I'm a North Sider, but it's pretty cool that he's from the cities. Uh, the story goes that Burke's family had just moved to Minnesota, and he was hooked on hockey from, uh, and wanted to get into Bantam hockey, uh, so he decided to hang around the practice rink and then asked to get on the team. Still, as Berkey put it himself, quote, at 13, that's a late start in Minnesota to start playing hockey, but I played two years of house league, then I moved to midget B, midget A, and then to high school hockey for Edina. Lots of kids can't plug into hockey like that. But Berkey took his size and worked tirelessly at his skating, taking lessons uh, in the summer and when he could, as he made his way up the ranks of rec leagues in the Twin Cities. He only actually got to play in really one year of high school uh, and then was a walk-on when he got to Providence, but he made the team. Uh, the coach of the Friars at that time was a young Lou Lamorello who had, become a tremendous, who had become a tremendous influence on Brian. He helped Berkey become an even better player. He even became a full scholarship player after that first year with co-captain Ron Wilson, and was drafted by the Flyers eventually. But it was career advice that Lamorello gave Berkey out of a path outside of hockey that would be the best thing that Lou ever imparted on this, his young player. Lou pushed Berkey to take the law school entrance exams in saying that it was not a request that he had to take the test. And it was a good thing that he did, because Berkey did so well, he got into the 97th percentile and was accepted into Harvard Law School. Berkey put off Harvard for a year and played a season in the AHL, winning the Calder Cup with the Maine Mariners. It may have been a championship team, but even Berkey would tell you that he wasn't the reason why they won the championship. So at the end of the season, Harvard called again, saying that that Berkey would have to enroll that upcoming year or he would possibly lose his spot for admission. At this point, Berkey decided to take matters into his own hands and spoke with the GM of the Flyers, Keith Allen, who told Berkey that he should go to Harvard, and quote, I can't see you making the NHL. It was a blunt yet sound piece of advice that Burke would never forget. That's important to the making of the man, in my opinion. Berkey would never have been, would never have had the option to go to Harvard if it were not for Lou Lamorello and his need to uh, be just a little bit more than a coach to to Burke. It was also extremely blunt yet honest for Allen to tell Berkey that he needed to go to Harvard. It sounded a lot like some of the blunt and honest comments that GM Brian Burke has given to his players and associates over the years. It served him well to get that advice as a young person, so he knows that that kind of honesty can do for a person, and I really truly believe that that was one of the bigger times and lessons that he brings with him today in his interactions with people. Also for me, it's the fact that Berkey had to work so hard to overcome his late start in hockey and still got to where he was in the ultra-competitive world of Minnesota high school hockey. It tells you all you need to know about the man, really. He set his sights on something and got there from sheer hard work and determination. I think he saw the value of that at an early age, and it carried with him throughout his life. It's also easy Easy to say, but important to say, that he's a competitor. But what sets him apart is that he's a competitor with a lot of smarts. You don't get into Harvard Law by being kind of smart, you're like legit smart. And add to the mix that he's a guy who's had to work hard for his slice of the pie in hockey to even play in the college, in high school, and the AHL for that matter. As I've mentioned a few times before, Uh, players like Berkey who have to fight all the way up are usually the ones who appreciate it the most for obvious reasons. It's that appreciation that makes them know not to take anything for granted and that's why their stories are sometimes a little bit more interesting and more compelling. It was the appreciation that made him such a good agent, which is where he found himself out of law school getting into the player representation gig uh, quickly and he amassed some of the biggest clients out there. One of them was a young Brett Hull. He tells a great story uh, that Hulley was being harassed by Terry Crisp when he was playing for Moncton or in the AHL uh, for being overweight in a college kid. So Brett decided he was going to call Berkey, who flew out to see him, and bluntly told him that Crisp was right. Hull was overweight, and he needed to get his you-know-what together. It was what Berkey felt was best, And as a result, Hulley went on to score 50 goals that season, tying an AHL rookie record. Once again, blunt and honest advice worked for him. So why wouldn't it work for Hulley? And it did. And being a competitor is what got him into the GM game to begin with. Pat Quinn, who was the GM of the Canucks, uh, had asked him to be the uh, assistant GM and uh, vice president of hockey operations. So he jumped at it. As he explains, he wanted to work for a team and start building a winner. Even though he liked the player representation game, he was just ready to be a part of something. Be a part of a team. I think his joining the Canucks as well was another good highlight into Berkey as a man. I think it's often often thought that he's stubborn and he doesn't listen to anyone. But in this case, he listened to Pat Quinn because he respected him. And he wanted to be a part of what Pat Quinn was building. By letting Quinn talk him into jumping out of the lucrative world of being a player agent, he was putting his trust in someone he respected. It's much like—it's a lot like what happened with Lamorello in college. He trusted the man, so we decided to follow him. I guess the best way to sum it up is that Berkey talks often in the book about trusting the opinion of a few chosen people, which is something he learned from Quinn, he says. Quinn was obviously one of those trusted people. So to me, I think Berkey has always tried to be that trusted person to others. But to do that, he's had to take a hard stance on things uh, and trust himself and his instincts. That might seem arrogant to others, but to Berkey, it's just being honest and moving forward, uh, trusting in himself and the experiences and advices that he's received over the years. And it's the trust in himself when he did some of his best work in hockey, and he did do a lot of it. So let's dive into some of those moments as we discuss Burke's role in the world of hockey in the second period after this.
1: Brian Burke uh, is here for an official announcement. Is Phil Kessel now a member of the Maple Leafs? Yes, he is. And uh, earlier this evening, uh, we obtained the rights to Phil Kessel from the Boston Bruins. And uh, I think I'd start by praising Peter sorelli He's been... Uh, I think Peter Shirelli's done as good a job as any general manager in our league the last two years, and he was very patient and drove a very hard bargain on this. It's a it's a very high price, uh, but it's one that we feel uh, makes sense for us, and I think what's made it possible to expend those picks is two focuses. One is that he's a young player. He's not even 22 yet. scored 36 goals last year. And second, uh, we think with some of the players we acquired without giving up picks, like the Tyler Bozaks, uh, you know, Slaney, Hansen, Gustafson. Uh these are players I think that were they available in the draft would would command a high price like that. So we feel by stocking the cupboard we can uh, take some of the cans off the shelf for the future. Um, Phil's a dynamic player. I've had him with uh, the U.S. national team. Uh, he's got great foot speed. He's a good power play specialist. He's good on the shootout and he's a, a solid kid. So uh, for us, uh, it's an important day for the Leafs and uh, we're very pleased that Phil Kessel's coming to Toronto tomorrow.
0: That was an interview that Berkey did uh, right after the Phil Kessel trade had been approved. Uh, And I thought it was really interesting because that trade is really important to uh, how the man was perceived in his time in Toronto. And then uh, one of the more important hockey trades at the time, uh, as we all remember. And I just think it... uh, is really kind of a a big deal because it it really set the Maple Leafs on a certain course for a number of years, as well as Berkey, for that matter, uh, as he was tied to the hip at Kessel uh, with Kessel. But uh, we'll talk about that a little bit more later as we dive in. But uh, that's really where we're going in the second period uh, as we talk about Berkey's career. And it was funny when I was writing this script, I kind of thought to myself, some of you may not really out there listening, may not really understand fully who Brian Burke is and what he's done. So that's really what this period is going to be about. As I've alluded to in the intro, he's been an agent, an assistant GM, and a director of hockey ops, a GM, and even an NHL uh, vice president. He's seen and done a lot, and that's one of the re- reasons the man is extremely credible as an analyst now. We've already sort of touched on the first part of his journey as a player and into his days as a lawyer and player agent, but Burke's journey into the top ranks of the NHL's leaders starts uh, when, as mentioned in the last period, he accepted a position to join the Canucks as an assistant GM and vice president of hockey operations under the great Pat Quinn in 1987. In what would be his first of two trips to the front office of Vancouver, Burke knew how the hockey management game was played but learned exponentially from Pat Quinn. Berkey handled more of the business aspects like ticket sales, etc., and he explains in the book very plainly that most people don't realize that the GM job entails a lot more than just player contracts and things that happen on the ice. He says that his his time there in Vancouver, he learned to tend to that side of the game while learning the other side of hockey ops from Quinn. But he's quick to point out that he was close with his players in Vancouver and often acted as a go-between and a filter between Quinn and the players. Uh, as you know, sometimes players don't have a direct line to the GM, and, uh, but they did, uh, and many times, to Berkey, who would talk to Quinn and turn for him. Still, with the Canucks in the late 1980s and early 1990s, uh, Berkey helped make one of the some of the team's biggest moves, and in some cases, uh, some of the big non-moves for the team. As he explains, the Canucks had a big chance as they were considering to pull the trigger on trading for Wayne Gretzky on his way out of Edmonton. Berkey mentions that he felt like the financials just really didn't add up. The Oilers wanted five first-round draft picks and $22 million cash from the Canucks. and Berkey realized that Vancouver was not a well-performing team financially, losing $30 million annually, so he advised Quinn and the ownership really not to take the deal. It was a hard pill to swallow for the Canucks, and looking back, I'm sure if you're a Canucks fan, it's really hard to swallow now, but the books really didn't add up, and Berkey had the guts to say that that was uh, not a good thing, Uh, and I found that to be pretty big. I mean, who wouldn't want Wayne Gretzky? Uh, It makes sense, but at the same time, when you look at uh, the financials, if they don't add up, they don't add up, and that's an important thing sometimes, because hockey is still a business, and Berkey realized that. Also, one of the other cool cool stories from that time in Berkey's career was him describing the drafting of Pavel Bure. He initially wasn't personally sold on Bure because it wasn't clear that he could actually defect from the Soviet Union or if he was even willing to try. But in the end, Bure was open and did defect to the U.S. and then eventually to Canada. The court battle that ensued was spearheaded by Berkey, who flexed his attorney muscles and got the Soviets to take a compensation package for Bure that was worth $250,000 US that was one of the better stories from the book and it was also even so it was even harder later in the book when Berkey describes returning in 1997 to be the full GM of the club that Burray told Berkey that he would not play out the last year of his contract with the Canucks you can tell that Berkey felt left down by someone who he had helped move mountains for and when you read it in the book you can really tell that uh, he did feel pretty let down um, by that but It is a business, and in the end, he was able to trade Burray. But after that um, saga, Berkey got his first full-time position with the Hartford Whalers, but that only lasted for one season in the 1992-93 season. He drafted Chris Pronger, and it looked like he was setting up for a long stint with the Whalers, But some issues with players and ownership not having his back caused the relationship to go a little sour and end very early as Berkey resigned after one season to take a job with the NHL to become the uh, VP of Hockey Operations for the league and help start the budding player safety office. In his position with the NHL, he was the league's lead disciplinarian from 1993 to 1998. He made strides in player safety by setting up the system that we know now in the league of reviewing injuries and offering hearing, hearings when needed. The book In the book, he discusses the high-level events like the Claude Lemieux-Chris Draper hit and how it affected him in the league. Uh, those are a lot of great insights and uh, certainly a part of the book I appreciated. Also from his time in the league, he, he was in on some of the major events outside of player safety like the 94-95 lockout and actually speaks very well of Gary Bettman's handling of that situation and many other things in the league. That's obviously kind of an unpopular view, but Berkey lets you know that the league wouldn't be where it is if Bettman didn't make some of the tough stances that he did. I think where Berkey gets it is that he knows that hockey is a business and Bettman has been good for business. As a matter of fact, Berkey says Bettman has probably done more for the NHL than anybody who's walked the planet. I'd be honest... Uh, you know, if I have to think about it, I got to turn off the fan part of my brain and I'll come to the conclusion that Berkey's probably right considering where the league was and where, when, uh, Bentman started and where it is now, it's no contest. He's done a good job and he's done a lot for the the league and for the sport. So though, after his time, uh, being in the league, Berkey went back to being a GM with Vancouver, um, he just had a chance to get back into the game. And I think, once again, it's that desire to be part of a team that he wanted. So uh, as the Canucks GM from 1998 to 2004, he built the Canucks into a real powerhouse, uh, ending his time with a record of 219, 181, 69, and 24. He drafted the Sedine Twins and made the West Coast Express. I'll tell you what, the maneuvering that it took to get the two first-round picks to get the Twins was nothing short of genius, and it's extremely shrewd. It's one of the better stories that Berkey tells, and I really encourage you, if you read the book, to zoom in on that one. There was a buzz in Vancouver during his years, and the team was at the top of the league and recovered from uh, what was some serious down years after that uh, Stanley Cup appearance in the early 90s. Then, in 2005, after a uh, small uh, hiatus uh, following his exit from Vancouver in 2004 uh, that basically happened because of a change of ownership. Uh, Berkey joined the Anaheim Ducks and built them quickly into a Stanley Cup winner as the team he built won the 2007 Cup. He made some tough calls who he was there, parting ways of Bab- Mike Babcock and ha- hiring Randy, Randy Carlisle. Also, the collection of players and the formula he used took the Ducks from missing the playoffs when he took over to a Stanley Cup winner in only two seasons. So that was some pretty good work and pretty fast work, to be honest. Um, His describing the building of the team uh, in Anaheim is a pretty good story because uh, there was a lot of nuances to that, but he uh, definitely put a lot of thought and effort into building that team and it showed by their win. Then after a decline in the Ducks, uh, shortly after their Stanley Cup win, Berkey eventually ended up stepping down only to quickly land on his feet and become the president and GM of the Toronto Maple Leafs in November of 2008. Taking that position, he became the first born American-born GM of the Maple Leafs and it looked like he'd be the one to turn the Leafs around after years of decline and mediocrity. Alas, Berkey's time in Toronto did not yield the results everyone thought, as we all know. The team only made the playoffs once and only had two seasons that were above 500. Additionally, he made the Phil Kessel trade that we talked about earlier and was largely criticized for the price he had to pay and the eventual, eventual work ethic of Kessel that seemed to be lacking. And if that wasn't enough, his coaching, choices, uh, his coaching choice to extend Ron Wilson just to fire him two months later was not well-received. And then after that, bringing in Randy Carlyle, it was seen as mostly a myopic and bad move. Uh, New owners moved into the Leafs' front office and fired Berkey before the 2013-2014 season. But once again, Berkey being Berkey, he landed on his feet, and the Calgary Flames offered him the job of president of hockey operations. It was a position where he was between the president of of the team and the GM. Once again, Berkey was given the task of rebuilding a team and in mediocrity and needed to turn them into a winner. While he was not the GM, he certainly had plenty of influence. Sure, there were good players brought in and the flames we see now are partly because of Berkey, uh, but the team's performance mixed with Berkey's desire to make his life a little bit easier and quieter uh, made for a stepping down that eventually happened on 27 April of 2018. Wow! That's a lot of a timeline. It's pretty big. I understand it's a lot of information, but it's really quite important uh, to know because the man did do a lot, uh, quite a lot, as you saw. Uh, Some of his most successful ventures, some of his ventures were successful and some were not. But what is for certain is that Brian Burke worked hard and did it his way and left his mark on the NHL. So let's discuss that mark in the next period as we look at Bergie's. Berkey's legacy in hockey right after this.
1: You you talk about what you want to be remembered for and you say in the book that you want to be remembered for being honest and ethical, for caring about the communities in which you lived, for being a good dad, having a strong moral compass. Hockey is not on that list. How come? Well, I think I used to say to my kids that when people come to your funeral, what are they going to say? What are they going to talk about? And then I stopped saying that after my son died, but really the the important things that people talk about are, did you make a difference in the city where you lived? Were you a kind person? Were you a good person? Did you do charitable work? That's a lot more important to me than talking about Stanley Cups. (laughs) You know, the the tone of the book is unapologetic and uh, particularly the part when we're Strangers come up to you on the street uh, in public and they say stuff like, I thought you were a jerk. I heard you I heard you speak finally. It turns out I think you're a nice guy. Uh, what's your reaction to when people come up to you and say things like that? Well, someone comes up to me and says, I just heard you speak. I've never liked you. I thought you were a jerk. And now I think you're a good guy. I think that's so condescending. And my ex-wife used to yell at me. She'd say, you have a chance to make a friend there. Just say thank you. And what I'd say to them is... I didn't care what you felt yesterday, and I certainly don't care today. And the book's not about <laughs> the book's not about changing anyone's view of me. I'm trying to put people. So Stephen Brunt wrote the book with me. I said, Stephen, I want people to read it and feel like they're in the room. They're on the draft floor with me, and they feel like they're part of the experience. And I think he did that.
0: That was an interview that Berkey gave uh, not too long after the book came out, um, talking about what his legacy actually is, and that's what we're going to talk about here in third period. I found it especially helpful because the man pretty much answers the question up front, and that will make it uh, a lot easier for us to discuss here. But I really like how the interviewer in that interview asked him uh, why it is that he didn't really list all the things he did in hockey as part of his legacy uh, is important. And his answer uh, really shows just what I think a lot of people miss when they look at the man, that, hey man, there's a very thoughtful person inside there uh, and someone that cares deeply about his family and uh, humanity, really, when you look at it. So looking at uh, what we're going to talk about here in the third period, I just want to start by saying, if you look up articles about Brian Burke, you're going to see a few things. Mostly you'll see things about how he drafted the Sedins, won a cup in Anaheim, and made the Phil Kessel trade in Toronto. Still, despite building a cup-winning team with the Ducks and strong teams elsewhere, you see very mixed bag of opinions on Berkey's overall performance. The teams he had in Vancouver were strong, but they never won a championship, and in Toronto and Calgary, they didn't get very far at all, really. You'll see so many people try to say that his body of work was primarily not successful, but I don't see it that way. I'm in the camp that says that Burke was one of the best executives in the last 20 years. It was it has to do with the fact that he was so much more than a GM. He was a leader. The teams that he led and were design and designed were reflections of Burke and the style of hockey he wanted to play and the kind of team that he wanted to have. As he always said, his players not only played hard, but they were good members of the community and represented the team well. It was a simple calculus. If the community respects the players and sees them doing good, They respect and support the team, even if the product on the ice was not that great. Brookie realized that and kept the uh, kept the idea in the forefront of the NHL. uh, kept the idea that in the forefront that the NHL was a business, and as such, it was supposed to be profitable. and That means selling tickets, putting a good product on the ice, making sure that the players were people that the fans wanted to see. Look at the Gretzky trade he squashed. He saw the financials and he knew it didn't make sense. He's someone who's always had the team in mind. It's rare to see that in an executive these days. Uh, and, you know, basically a good mix of age, instincts, and smarts. The maneuvers he talks about pulling uh, to draft the Sedins and earlier Chris Pronger and to Hartford were just totally great maneuvers. And add to that his time in the league and his ability to establish player safety standards that makes smarts and acumen that often... there's just shows smarts and acumen that NHL executives often don't possess. But Berkey does. Still, you may ask why is he so often referred to as a polarizing character with an actual questionable record. To me, that has a lot, a lot to do with two aspects of Berkey's career. The first is that he often, due to his bluntness and strong advocacy for his teams, rubbed a lot of reporters the wrong way. The media has often been savage towards Berkey because he hasn't taken much from them. Sure, he could have backed down and could have played nice, but that's just never his style. Still isn't really, now that he's a part of the media and at his current job in Sportsnet. The second factor for me is that he failed to completely turn around Toronto. If you know anything about Toronto hockey and its market, it's brutal. The Preston fans are passionate about the Leafs, and they want the team to be a winner in what is the largest hockey market in the NHL. Your every move is dissected, so in a place like that, you need to be perfect, which no one is. Berkey tried to make the moves that he needed to make Toronto better, but the issue is they just weren't going to be enough. Also, he was starting from a big deficit, as the team was pretty horrible in those days, if you remember. Also, to me, his successes in Vancouver and Anaheim are often overlooked because of his performance with the Leafs. In Anaheim, he was in a big city market where they weren't really even the most popular hockey team at the time. He had the ability to make the moves he needed to with little scrutiny or explanation, which to me is the better situation and suits a manager like Berkey, who just wants to let you have him do his job and stay out of his way and doesn't care much for the opinion of others. In Toronto, it seems like the fans in the press expect you to care and to show that you care. Uh, they just weren't never going to get that from Berkey. They were never going to get the uh, kiss the ring sort of uh, situation. He's just not that type of guy. Toronto wanted him to win, but they didn't realize that he was going to do it his way and really didn't need or want to be second-guessed. I think another ad for me... Uh, is that Berkey often stuck up for Gary Bettman and it does, and does so in the book a few times. As said before, he thinks Bettman might be the best thing that happened to the game almost pretty much ever. Fans would largely disagree. To me, though, this point is logically correct and Bettman has grown the game into what it is and set the framework in place for a great future, at least financially. As said before, Berkey sees the game from all aspects, including the financials, which is where Bentman has done the most good. As a fan, though, I'll say when someone says in a book that Gary Bentman is one of the best things to happen to hockey, I will go over that part again, just to make sure I read that right. But still, once again, I logically understand where he's coming from. But I can see where some people would definitely resent that if he said that out loud and make it seem like uh, maybe Berkey's a bit off his rocker. But for all the negative, to me, it's the positives that come out about the man. You cannot ignore Berkey and the huge stand that he took to support gay and lesbian rights when his son Brendan came out as gay. In the public, he made sure to support it, and most of all, go the extra mile and ensure that the game was doing the right thing for these players that were often forgotten and in many times marginalized. After Bren- Brendan's tragic death in a car accident, which was a very powerful part of the book and a uh, very powerful chapter in Berkey's life, uh, Berkey and his other son, uh, Patrick, launched the You Can Play project targeting uh, homophobia in sports and making sure that it's rooted out. That takes a lot. It takes a lot of effort and a lot of courage. Berkey's love of things is deep, and you can tell. His kids, the birds he loves to watch, and hockey. He loves the game so much that he's worked his life to make it better. When you care not only to build competitive teams, but teams that are good community members with positive influences, you obviously care. And to me, that was the main part of Berkey's legacy. He loves and cares about the sport and has given his life to make it better. In the end, you might have issue with what he does or how he shows that love, but Ber- Berkey really doesn't care what you think. So, that with that, let's get to the conclusion of this tilt with the post game, which is coming up right after this.
2: Here's Vice President and Director of Hockey Operations for the NHL Brian Burke. Brian, how do you respond to those who criticize Rule 78, the in the crease rule? Well, I think the biggest problem we have, Ron, is that people don't realize that this is not a new rule. This is not a rule change. We've had a zero tolerance on man in the crease for several years. This is not new and that's the most amazing thing to most fans is this is not new it's not a rule change and we have not done a good job of explaining that to the public but it's new in terms of having the video replay involved that's right so what we've done this year is we are right far more often than we were one year ago in enforcement of this rule and we're getting criticized for that I think people should realize that this is not a common replay situation we average a replay for a man in the crease problem only about every five and a half games so it's not like it's an epidemic the problem is when people disagree with the result it gets lots of attention the fact that the video replay official can't initiate the call now is seen as a a concern in a lot of quarters i think that's a flaw in the rule and the general managers have voted to change that for next year We hope to get Governor's approval for that in the offseason and that will not be the case next year, hopefully. That'll leave a loophole with respect to whether or not the player in the crease was pushed in. Will the video replay official be empowered to make that decision next year? The managers have not approved the video goal judge to make that call after extensive debate. Uh, And people should understand what we tell our referees. We tell the referee that he has to assume that on his way to the penalty box to report a goal or request review, that that equipment's going to die on him, that there's going to be a power failure, the machine's going to break or whatever. He has to be equipped as he skates to the box to make a ruling on whether a player was pushed in and whether, if he was not pushed in, whether he was physically in the crease. That's a location issue prior to the puck entering the crease. So he's got several calls to make on this, but so far the managers have resisted giving the video goal judge the authority to rule whether a player was pushed in.
0: That was from a segment of Hockey Night in Canada. You can hear Ron McClain interviewing Berkey when Berkey was the vice president of the league, talking about the uh, toe in the crease. And if you were a fan at that time, you definitely know why that conversation was going on and what it was about. Uh, It was definitely a hot topic. Um, (laughs) And we could even go so far as to talk about Brett Hall's 1999 Stanley Cup goal, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. Uh, But uh, I really felt that that was a good interview to uh, finish things off because uh, it just, once again, shows Burke is a very practical, very to-the-point person uh, and standing up for what he thinks and what he believes and being uh, very to-the-point about it. So i got to really say, as always, I really enjoyed this week's episode. But for some reason, I don't know. I really enjoyed this week's episode a little bit more than normal. It's always very cool to examine the story of a hockey player, but rarely do you get to get such a good look into the life of a hockey executive. It's an important part of the hockey story and often the movies moves that they make are even more important than the moves that the players make on the ice as we've alluded to before berkey obviously made some moves as we discussed and i found his book just to be such a great look at those moves in a way that only he could tell i mean when you look at his objective that he's talked about in some interviews about what the book should be like i really did feel like i was in the room Uh, when he made all those decisions because he was very open and to the point about it. It's entertaining to hear about so many great moments in his hockey life, but it's even better to hear it from Berkey. He's a master at making the reader get all the details, but at the same time stay entertained. I really felt like his wisdom and philosophies were omnipresent in the book as he sprinkled them in at various points. Berkey's view on how to run a hockey team, the state of the game, how to conduct yourself, how to Be a Father, uh, this, and this book is just full of it, full of Berkey's career and how to you know make a hockey life. I felt it was a, a strong look into a very strong life lived, a, a life that happened to be just immersed in hockey. I just felt like reading this book, I got to know a person who's unique in uh, various experiences in life, shine through to make a complicated individual. One minute Berkey is every bit as humble and reserved as a Minnesotan, and the next he comes through with the bluntness and language of a New Englander. And then, just when I think I've seen all the sides, he comes across with a very Canadian and reserved point of view about something. Most people lack the language or smarts, or just plain gumption to write an honest account of their life. Not so, as we mentioned with Berkey. And that's really the reason that I like this book so much, and you will too. So go ahead and pick it up. And I recommend that if you do audiobooks, like I said before, you get this one on audiobook. Because I really did like Berkey's narration. It was darn near perfect, and it adds a lot to the story. So recommend that you do it that way. If you can't, just read the book. That's always good too. Phew. I think that does it for this week's episode. I'm about out of it. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this tilt just as much as I have. And if you did really like what you've heard, please tell someone you know and give us a shout out on social media. It would really help. Uh, You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And while you're on there, give the show a follow for the latest episodes and facts about the week's uh, featured book. Additionally, if you've got a comment or comments and suggestion or suggestions, uh, you can email the show at from the point podcast 16 at gmail.com. And I'll be sure to answer you as soon as I can. Finally, I'm looking forward to next week's episode where we'll be taking a look into another one of the world's greatest hockey books. Uh, and this time, shifting the gears more towards coaches as we look at the lives and uh, events of some of the greatest coaches in the modern era as we go through Craig Custance's book, uh, Behind the Bench, Inside Inside the minds of hockey's greatest coaches. It'll be a good one for sure. So, till then, take care, thanks for listening, and stay classy, hockey fans.